agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to our slowish go through the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's always fun. You know, it's been a lot of fun for me. I love doing the every week kind of the stories that are happening there. But I like the idea of kind of what we're more used to doing, which is, you know, we, we don't teach inside of current events. So it is fun to get into those current events and see how those are influenced by the things that we teach. But it's also fun then to kind of step back in this show and say, hey, but what are some things that you might not know if you're always doing the current event? <laughs> you know? right. and, and, and so having that chance to kind of understand the Constitution is, is a big one for me. It's one of the things if you know you're going to be in my introductory government class, which I know many students, uh, they dread <laughs> when they come to any school. Like, oh, gin heads, I don't want to take uh, government. But I do really think it's important for really all citizens to have an idea of their constitution, at least have read it, uh, and not just have read it, but as we've seen, kind of dug into it a little bit. So you kind of know what's going on and what's happened. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, here in uh, this episode today. We're going to be taking on uh, today Article 1, Section 9 in just a moment. So, Ken, you know, we have spent a number of weeks now, and as a matter of fact, even you and Mike were able to step in uh, when I had a moment, uh, and have been, we've been working through the powers of Congress. And, and the powers of Congress are located in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. It's, it's one of the long, well, Article I is the longest of uh, 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 the articles, uh, in part because we've talked about uh, Congress was viewed as being the most important of the institutions uh, in, in the federal government. But then after, immediately after these grants of powers, and it ends with the necessary and proper clause in Article 1, uh, Section 8, we then move on to Article 1, Section 9. And that's what we're going to start taking on here. And these are, in fact, the powers denied to Congress. Uh, so, for example, uh, here in the very first phrase, we're going to kind of go through this clause by clause. So let me read each, we're going to read each of these clauses and then we're going to talk about uh, uh, each of them one at a time. And so the first one uh, for Article 1, Section 9 is this. It says, uh, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. But a tax or duty may be imposed on such uh, uh, importation, not ex exceeding $10 for each person. Now, that's a lot of kind of uh, uh, veiled uh, uh, clauses here, but this is dealing with slavery. The, the idea here was this, that co could Congress ban slavery right at the outset? Uh, and Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 says... No. And this is kind of a good setup for what you're going to see, because, of course, you might think that's the case, because we've already talked about uh, in Article 1, Section 8, one of the powers of Congress is the ability uh, to, uh, to regulate uh, commerce with foreign countries, but not in terms of slavery. Uh, so, Ken, obviously, we're, you know, we're past uh, uh, 1808. Uh, yeah. We fought a civil war. 
this 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 first clause, while it may be a good example, it doesn't serve much actual lifting power in the con- uh, Constitution, other other than maybe pointing out to those who don't recognize it the the importance of slavery on the creation of the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, the, the Article One, Section Nine begins with a you know, depending whether you're a glass half empty or glass half full type person, you know, it's either one of the most shameful clauses in the Constitution because it actually says, even though Congress has the power to regulate uh, foreign commerce, commerce with foreign nations, um, the one and only kind of commerce that uh, Congress can't prohibit um, is the international slave trade, the, the, uh, the importation of slaves into the country. That has to be allowed to continue for another 20 years uh, before Congress can even consider uh, using its enumerated power to regulate foreign commerce and, and banning the international slave trade. So that's sort of the glass uh, half empty view of it. I guess the glass half full view of it would be <laughs> to say that um, this shows that even on day one, like the minute that we seated a, a U.S. Congress, the votes would have been there right away to ban the international slave trade. And that's why they felt that it was necessary. The slave states said, we're not going to join the Constitution. We're not going to ratify the Constitution unless we get some assurances that the international slave trade won't be banned right away, because we know that otherwise Congress would ban it right away. And in fact, you know, as soon as the 20-year sunset passed, the year 1808 is mentioned in that clause, Congress immediately, the very first day that they could, they they banned the international slave trade. So some people would say that this shows that we were really an anti-slavery country at heart, but had to make uh, some compromises with slavery. Whereas other people would say, um, well, no, we we actually you know protected slavery in our constitution um, even against um, uh, initial early uh, uh, democratic change through legislation. Now, of course, the the glass half empty side is to say, well, the reason you mean you might immediately say, oh, wow, there were a lot of individuals against slavery, but there were economic reasons why individuals might want to vote against that importation that would not have included ending the slave trade, but rather making their own property worth more money. That's true, because this is only a, a ban on uh, Congress's is. Um, is going to be given some power after a 20-year sunset to end the international slave trade. And arguably, Congress could have even used its power to regulate interstate commerce to ban the um, interstate slave trade. Um, But the Constitution, as understood by the framers, would never have given Congress the power to ban uh, intrastate slave trade. So if you start banning, you know, bringing in more slaves, it does raise the value of the slaves that are already here which yeah. I think was your point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, today, of course, this is an interest. It's, it's useful for understanding that mechanism. But again, it like, as you noted, it has more to do with understanding the Constitution as a moral document than it really has any kind of meaningful continued legal significance. Yeah, but that's what it's, it is. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah that's right. It was, I don't think we're in too much danger today of, of Congress uh, legislating to uh, allow to permit the international slave trade again. <laughs> in, in fact, we have the uh, 13th Amendment now, so that would actually be unconstitutional. All slave trade is unconstitutional after the 13th Amendment. Exactly. And want to get there as, as we move forward now. So the next uh, the second uh, clause of Article one, Section nine. Is this, it states, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it, end quote. 
So now, habeas corpus, this is one, I don't know, maybe listeners have heard of, but you don't uh, recognize it. But it, it's this idea of you got to produce the body. You can't be held uh, without having some kind of presenting, but for a judge. And it actually goes back uh, to the Magna Carta. It's kind of the first location where that happens. The idea is, is that you can't have uh, Congress, in this case, uh, uh, locking individuals up uh, without the ability of them to be before a judge. So that's a pretty important one, Ken. What should we know about that? Well, one thing is uh, about the habeas corpus clause. It, it's one of, you know, there's several examples you'll find in the Constitution of how the, the framers were not uh, perfect uh, drafters, because um, although Article 1, Section 9 does um, prohibit Congress from suspending the writ of habeas corpus except under certain circumstances, they actually forgot in, in Article 1, Section 8, um, or, in, or in Article 3, perhaps, maybe it would have belonged there with the judicial power, but there's no, there's no part of the Constitution that authorizes the grant of the writ of habeas corpus. Right. <laughs> There's just a limitation on when it can be suspended. So, um, yeah, so I think that's a drafting error. But certainly the, the, the framers obviously thought that courts had a habeas corpus jurisdiction, which is um, a, a jurisdiction that English courts had, as you said, since the Magna Carta. And, and, the, and the concept of it was that um, as a protection of civil liberty, um, if anybody was being uh, detained or jailed or, or just not free to walk around, um, they had the right to go into a court and challenge the authority or the jurisdiction uh, of the detaining authority to detain them. So, you know, this went back to, um, you know, the days of strong monarchy in England. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the early kinds of civil rights that the um, at least the English aristocracy was able to obtain for itself uh, was that the the king should not be allowed to just arbitrarily jail people. But that if if the king, you know, grabbed somebody, had them arrested and jailed, maybe hold up in the Tower of London or something that the uh, that there just be for an right. example. Just for an example, yeah, <laughs> that, that there should be people should have a right um, to petition a court, and and then the habeas corpus, as you said, bring me the body. The the king's men would have to um, produce that person who was being detained at the Tower of London. They'd have to bring that person into court and answer the petition and explain, you know, by what authority and for what reason are you locking this person up? And and if the court uh, concluded that um, that there was not a valid lawful reason to justify the detention, um, or the detaining authority actually lacked lacked authority to even um, authorize the detention, um, then the court would you know right there in the courtroom while the detainee was there, you know would order uh, they would grant the writ of habeas corpus, and that's a, a court order ordering that they be set free, that they could walk right out of the court right then and there, and and we have that privilege to this day. And it is primarily um, used, probably these days, primarily used um, for, for, by people who've actually been convicted of crimes and they're being held in prison. But they um, will argue to some extent that there was something unconstitutional, either about the law that they were convicted under or about the conduct of the trial, that the trial didn't meet constitutional requirements. So that's how most modern petitions for habeas corpus come into court. But there also have been other uses for them in, in modern times. And, you know, they, they, it, the writ became very important during the war on terrorism when you had all the detainees at yes. Guantanamo and elsewhere. That, um, again, the, 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 the writ of habeas corpus was the, 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 the basis for um, uh, those detainees to, 
to challenge their detentions. And, and they did have some success at the Supreme Court. In fact, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pause you for just a second, Ken, because we need to take just a moment. Okay, so Ken, when we were a moment ago, you were talking about how the most recent uh, incarnation of, of invoking habeas corpus had to do with Guantanamo Bay, right? So we have this location where we're holding enemy combatants, at least under the language of uh, uh, then President Bush, uh, but then not allowing them to have the normal trial process and therefore asking, therefore, to be in front of a court. Uh, so maybe to extend the idea of that Tower of London, hey, you, you've got to bring people from uh, Guantanamo. They get to be with their lawyer and they have to become in front of a, a, a in, in front of a judge and, and talk more about that now. Yes. Yeah, so I, I would say nothing was normal about the war on terrorism because, you know, one other kind I mean, a lot of detention, as you sort of suggested, happens because someone's been accused of some crime or convicted of some crime. But in, in, in war, uh, people are also detained as prisoners of war, right? So just the, the mere fact that they're um, uh, uh, members of an army of a country that we are fighting a war against, you know, they're, they're captured so that they can be removed from the battlefield. They're held for the duration of the war. They don't have to be accused of having done anything wrong. Just the mere fact that they're taking up arms against the United States justifies holding someone as a prisoner of war. But what happened in the war on terrorism was, um, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda um, attacked this country and, and our Congress authorized the use of force in retaliation. And we had a sense that um, the Al-Qaeda attacks had been launched uh, from Afghanistan, that Osama bin Laden was in charge. We probably knew a few other people that were involved. But by and large, um, you know, when that all happened, the, the U.S. armed forces and the U.S. intelligence services didn't really know, you know who all the people were who were in Al-Qaeda. And when we went over to Afghanistan uh, and even some other countries in that region, um, you know, and the, and the mission is, you know, round up everyone in Al Qaeda and take them prisoner of war. Um, we didn't have very good tools for figuring out who it was that we were trying to round up. And and probably the most common tool that we used was uh, reward money. You know, so you'd have um, U.S. military or intelligence personnel going around to areas where it was thought that Al Qaeda operated and saying, you know, we'll pay bounties to people who tell us who's in Al Qaeda. And uh, and so that led to a lot of people taking money and naming names and, and about 800 people total being rounded up. And as you could expect from, you know, using that kind of intelligence gathering, the, the large majority of them were completely innocent and had nothing to do with Al Qaeda. And so um, so this led to a situation where you have all these um, uh, uh, people grabbed out of Afghanistan because their neighbors decided to make a few bucks by saying that they were in Al Qaeda, and they're they're brought to. Uh, we Guantanamo all have that Bay. neighbor. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're brought to Guantanamo Bay uh, in Cuba, and they take advantage of the writ of habeas corpus, and they they start filing petitions in federal district courts. And Congress was not crazy about the fact that the habeas corpus mechanism was available here. And Congress actually passed a series of statutes between uh, 2003 and 2007 um, trying to cut off uh, the, the, the use of the writ of habeas corpus by these Guantanamo detainees. Um, but the, the Supreme Court kept saying in a series of cases, uh, the, the final one being a case called uh, Boumedian versus Bush, um, that uh, that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended by Congress because that's what it says in Article One, Section Nine, um, and that that although there is a safety hatch in Article One, Section Nine, that the privilege can be suspended when, in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. 
Um, the court found that by 2007, when the last of those statutes was enacted, you know, six years after September 11th, uh, that we were no longer in a time of rebellion or invasion, and Congress had not made the finding that we still were. And they did not allow um, a suspension of the writ, and they actually ordered um, the military to give uh, um, review proceedings called combatant status uh, review proceedings to each of the detainees who wanted to uh, make a claim that they were not members of Al-Qaeda and they'd been wrongly identified. And, and the court also said that if those detainee uh, proceedings, the combatant status review proceedings didn't uh, proceed in a timely way or, or weren't fair enough, the, the, the courts, federal district courts would still backstop that using the writ of habeas corpus. And in the end, I think the way the numbers broke down, um, out of the 800 or so people that were ever detained there, um, 40 of them, 40 of them remain in detention today. And I guess we can assume that those people were were real, real Al Qaeda members. Yeah. Um, but 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 of the uh, of of the of the more than 700 um, who um, were grabbed, um, all the rest have been released by now. Um, you know, some of them were released um, into the custody of other law law enforcement of other countries, um, so they weren't completely exonerated. But there were there were no more than about 100 that fit that category. Um, I'll have to admit there were also some who were released who then, um, um, you know, joined, you know, re did more terrorist acts right. afterwards. Right. So they were wrongly released, I guess, but they or, or radicalized while they were detained. But that ended up being about 80 of them. And so I think under the most generous count, if you say, well, everyone that's still there, plus everybody that committed acts of terrorism after they were released, plus everyone that was released to the custody of other countries that were going to keep them in jail. Um, that still only adds up to about 200 out of the 800. So I think it is about 600 at least um, who, you know, were wrongly detained, who were found to have been wrongly detained, who were let go and who never caused any problems again uh, after they were let go. And, and, you know, a lot of them might still be there if it wasn't for the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. So that uh, played a, an important role um, in, in trying to, uh, restrain the war on terrorism to um, certain kind of uh, uh, rule of law uh, principles. And uh, um, and as I say, the other kind of very common use of habeas today is uh, it'll be used by people who've been convicted of crimes, generally in state courts. And they'll say, well, the, 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 the state trial uh, did not meet constitutional standards. And sometimes the federal courts will take a, a look at that. Although the, the success rates on those kind of petitions are very low, like less than 1%. So most most um, petitions for habeas corpus that get filed by uh, people convicted of crimes in state court, they, the, the court will have a proceeding on them, but they won't, won't generally grant those petitions except in very special cases. Now, in the case of the, the 800 you were talking about, the, you know, of course, we did have the one who was a U.S. citizen, uh, Hamdi, right, who mm -hmm. been sent originally to Guantanamo, Guantanamo because... Officials didn't recognize he was an, uh, an American, but he also uh, doesn't he have a similar uh, case now? Eventually, though, Hamdi, he renounces his U.S. citizenship and I believe still lives in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. The other thing about his case that was interesting was um, over, over, it was a 5-4 vote, but um, the, the majority in the court actually did not think it was significant that he was a U.S. citizen. So the, the majority said that the same exact rules apply to U.S. citizens as to non-citizens. Um, again, that rule being that everyone in uh, Guantanamo, and in his case, he wasn't in Guantanamo. He was in a, when they found out he was a citizen, they brought him to a naval brig in Virginia. But even for him, um, 
everyone, whether 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 they're citizen or non-citizen, they'd be entitled to have a, a administrative combatant status review tribunal hearing um, before before a military tribunal, where they could argue that they were not actually members of Al Qaeda. Um, uh, and 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 um, and so he was entitled to that, but so were all the non-citizens, and and those would be backstopped by um, potential availability of uh, habeas corpus in federal court um, if if the combatant status tribunal didn't happen or or if it didn't unfold fairly. Um, but there were four justices who thought that that was not an appropriate mechanism for a U.S. citizen, and uh, uh, Justice Scalia had an opinion where he said. If the government believes that a U.S. citizen took up arms against the United States, then the, the, the government should charge that person with treason or they should let them go. And they, they shouldn't just be detaining them on the theory that they're an enemy combatant. Um, and so, so that, was, that, that opinion was agreed to um, by, by four justices. Um, but the majority actually in the Hamdi case found that um, the same exact procedure should apply to him as to all the others. And that actually included the procedure that you know, if the military tribunal concluded uh, that he was a member of Al Qaeda, um, then even though he was a U.S. citizen, they could just continue to hold him as a prisoner of war um, uh, in a military brig um, yep. rather than trying him with a crime. Well, I'm going to pause us there, Ken, because we have just reached the end of the preview, uh, a little bit longer of a preview. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, for our Article One, Section Nine Constitution. Uh, uh, take. So Ken and I, we've been going through the U.S. Constitution. And so if you would like to listen to the rest of the show, if you'd like to join us for all the rest of the shows and maybe even catch up, you know, we're we're already all the way to Article 1, Section 9. You can catch up is one of the fun things about doing it this way. And you do that by becoming a supporter. And that's what makes this podcast work. So if you'd like to get the rest of this, and not only this, but get ad-free versions of everything we put out, um, in addition to the rest of the show, all you've got to do is take a look at the show notes uh, or head to patreon.com slash politics guys uh, and support us. Or you can head to uh, for Venmo. You can uh, hit us up at, at politics guys. And of course, also through PayPal at Polit. You're going to see all of these in the show notes as well as heading to politicsguys.com slash support. If you're not in a position to financially support the show, we get that. And so you want to hear the rest of Ken and myself, uh, please just send Mike an email at mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I know he will get you uh, set up. And don't forget, if you do, uh, do it through Patreon, there is the ability uh, to do this as a free preview. So you can do it for a month. Uh, it's kind of a risk-free trial. You can take a look at that again. Take a look at the show notes. Uh, and you can go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we'd love for you to share this or other pieces of the preview or full weekend episodes that come out. Uh, you can either have them ad or ad, uh, ad free. Again, if you're a supporter, we encourage you to do that. If you've got any kind of questions for myself or for Ken, you want to know more about the Constitution or anything else we've talked about, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com or you can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see all of those links in the show notes. Also, don't forget, if you're a supporter, you're going to have the opportunity to talk to us on Discord directly. And I've been doing that earlier today, as a matter of fact. So I look forward to chatting with you in one of those ways. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and most recently, Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode this weekend. I hope you'll join us then.